0: I'm James, and this is Producing Fun, a podcast about making games from a product perspective. Welcome to Producing Fun. My guests this week are Sophie Williams and James Hewitt. Together, they run Needy Cat Games, a game studio located in Nottingham here in the UK. Needy Cat Games is not a publisher. James and Sophie create new games, but they don't finance and market them. They also don't work like conventional game designers either. They don't go around pitching games to different companies in the hopes of being published, rather they create games to order based on client requests, leveraging their considerable experience working for Games Workshop and now a range of other tabletop companies. In their day-to-day work, they go well beyond the traditional remit of a designer too, considering usability, graphic design, and component count limitations laid down by clients in their work. In some projects, They will even manage graphic designers and artists themselves, completing critical tasks that sit squarely with the publisher in most situations. The game studio model is still a real rarity in the world of tabletop games, but to me it represents an interesting new development. While Kickstarter has made more generalists than ever, self-published creators like myself, shepherding ideas all the way from back of envelope to shrink wrap games sitting on store shelves, This kind of specialisation is exactly the sort of thing I'm expecting to see more of in future. As Sophie and James are very honest about in this interview, there's almost no one who really has both the skills and the interest in doing every single part of this complex process. As the industry grows, and the competition for great commercially appealing games gets ever tougher, it seems natural to me that skills will increasingly divide organisations into different specialisms. Why wouldn't people who excel at design and development just want to do that? just as those who make financial bets on titles or specialize in marketing are likely to find their own niche over time. Sophie and James's unique experience and approach give them a deep insight into making games from a more product-orientated perspective than most designers. For anyone making games, this interview is densely packed with useful advice, from driving creativity with a tight brief, to the so-called Kickstarter treadmill and its dangers, from when and how to integrate artists and graphic designers into a design process, to a fascinating discussion on the future of the market. This is one conversation you don't want to miss. We join just as they explain what a game studio does.
1: So I think we're in a really unique position aren't we really? I, mean, I can think of up to a dozen maybe people that I know of that do similar things to what we do.
2: We're not a publisher and I think that's the thing is a lot of people think of a game studio as being yes. someone who publishes their own games and we don't do that.
1: Basically You've got the publishers, and then there are designers. And designers, they will design a game, and go and pitch it to publishers, and say, Mm. "We would like this. We would like you to publish this game." And there's a back and forth there. What we do generally is we work with clients who already have an idea for a game, or they have an access to an IP, or they have a range of miniatures, or something they would like to turn into a game, but they don't have that skill set. So what, what we do is we work with them to a brief, which we work out, and we create games effectively on On demand really? on demand. Uh, really? Yeah, on demand. We,
2: we create games to fulfil a brief from a client which is very different because I think the sort of standard way is if you're like a your stereotypical game designer is you will design a bunch of games. So you might design one or two games, or I've heard of people who've got 10 designs all like ready to go and they'll make sell sheets and they'll pitch them to publishers and they'll go to meet the publisher events and they'll try and pitch their game. And publishers are going to these events, maybe making their own games, but also going, oh, well, what we want is like, I don't know, a game for eight to 12 year olds that uses no more than a deck of 60 cards and a 20 dollar
1: price point yeah and
2: only plays in 15 minutes and they might have a very specific need and what they're doing is they're looking out for people who fulfill their need who also have a great product and that is quite difficult to do because you're matching up whatever someone's just thought of as a cool thing to make which is completely random like amazing ideas came come out of that and some amazing things are made
1: but if it's not exactly what publishers are looking for then then it's
2: really difficult to get picked up
1: we were We've both had a fair bit to do with the tabletop mentorship program. So, you know, talk for him last, last week. About, uh, what was it imposter about? syndrome. Imposter syndrome, how no one knows, knows what they're doing. Um, <laughs> one of my former mentees, a woman called Danielle, she was telling me about how she, she was doing this crazy whistle-stop tour. She was using all of her annual leave at work to go to every convention in the US. And there's this quite a big convention circuit. And she was trying to get to every single one to pitch her game. Like everyone where a publisher was in, this, in attendance to pitch her game. I mean, she had so many games she worked on and they were all all great.
2: Fantastic games.
1: But she just kept being told it's not quite what we need right now. And the thing is when you think how many designers they must see and how crowded the board games market is generally, you realise what kind of a a lightning strike of of luck you're looking for.
2: And then I think you get people who self-publish either by just Going and p- making the game themselves, or they'll, a lot of people put it on Kickstarter.
0: If you can think of any examples, James, speak up. <laughs> um. <laughs> oh, well, I'm struggling a little bit. Who would go and do <laughs> such a thing as that? Something yeah. as mad as that. <laughs> but we sort of landed somewhere in the middle of all Yeah, wars, we, we?
2: We, we sort of looked at it and we realized, for all our faults and d- plugging away at things we don't really enjoy, like admin, we did realize early off the bat that we would not suit just making games and then trying to pitch them that wasn't going to be a thing and also there's no guaranteed income there and if we were going to start something where we were quitting our jobs to do it because you've been doing it well we've both been sort of dabbling for a long time but you've been game designing since you were like twelve or something
1: my first game was when I was five. I found it recently. It, it wasn't great. I'll, I'll give myself a little bit of leeway,
0: you know. <laughs> <laughs> it needed way more testing. The artwork was way off. Maybe, had your five-year-old self hadn't really properly considered product market fit. Yeah. That, I think that was actually, that was the key issue. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if, I, if I had the time, I'd go back and uh, give myself a lecture. But yeah, so I think I've
1: been designing games for a long time and I've been doing it professionally with Games Workshop for a while you'd you'd had a really strong interest in games you'd you'd help me develop lots of yeah well I've done loads
2: of play testing and development with you on all the stuff you were doing for your own like hobby for quite a long time and then we were like well if this is something we're actually going to do we need to have like a guaranteed income but so originally we were like oh this will be a thing we do for a while we'll just make games for other people while we set up systems in place so that we can self-publish through kickstarter and that was always our sort of original concept wasn't it so we were just like oh well we happen to have connections within the industry and because james had been a games designer for games workshop you were like people were coming up to you going would you write us a game so we were like well this is a perfect like gap in the market because actually not many people I mean as we said there are people out there doing it there's not many where just people can walk go up and be like I've got this idea will you write it for me that's not generally mostly how the industry works mm. so we were like well this is a nice little niche for us to get comfortable get established and then produce our own games
1: And I think what I meant was for the first couple of years of working we were always looking ahead. We were thinking, right, we're doing this for now, but later on, we're going to get into the meat of what we're doing later. And I think we have just sort of realised, actually, slow down, this is what we're good at. We're mm. good at making games for other people. And if that means that we can use that to create space in our schedule to make a game for ourselves once in a while, then that's good. But really, I think the, the, the bread and butter of this job that we do, as our studio does, is always going to be bespoke game design for other companies. Yeah. Because... As you say, it, it's a model that works. It supports us as a business.
2: Mm.
1: We're not having to gamble capital we don't have on loads of Kickstarters and things, and yeah. potentially get onto that Kickstarter treadmill that you see some small companies so struggling with, into. where they where they lowball a Kickstarter in order to make money, right? And then need to do a second
0: Kickstarter to fund the first Kickstarter, and then you can't escape that. That, that seems to be a real problem in the industry to some extent, right? Amongst Maybe amongst smaller companies. I haven't seen Simon's detailed accounts, but I do wonder a little bit if they're in a somewhat similar situation, right? Although certainly their products, you, you can't argue that Simon's products are underpriced. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Well, I think the thing is as well is that you get trapped in it, but also there's this huge pressure from backers. It becomes this very stressful thing of like, how do you set your stretch goals? There's now this expectation that you always must have stretch goals. Not everyone does it, but most people do. You always must have stretch goals. You always must have some kind of good deal for the consumer. It's not just that they're getting the game, they're getting a cool bunch of stuff with it and costing that and planning it out. And then the realities of costs changing or just you get a slight miscalculation and that's it, you're borrowing money from your future self. And then you're you're stuck because you've already promised the game to however many people. It's like I saw recently, I think it was last week, shipment containers from China are going for like up to 10 times their price at the moment because there's so few of them coming out at the moment because of everything's going on. Sometimes it's double, but it can be up to 10 times. So there are lots of small companies who just can't ship their game. They just can't afford to. Unfortunately, it's just a risk that you have to take and it costs a lot and you can do it but by spending more money and that means you need more money means you get stuck
1: and I think another issue that that kind of feeds into it is that a large chunk of the tabletop games industry is hobbyist led by which I mean Mm. no one gets into manufacturing nuts and bolts because it's the thing they want to do I mean designing games making games and that tends to be a thing people get into because they really want to do it Mm. and so there tends to be a little bit of rose-tinted glasses optimism around a lot of things and so people will go I oh, I really want to get my game to kickstarter and really what they want out of it is they just want to have their game made and be out there being played by people yeah and so they're kind of willing to go well I don't need to make, make a big profit as long as it's out there and so they set their margins incredibly low thinking well it doesn't matter if I don't make a profit and then something happens exchange rates fluctuate border treaties change whatever it might be and suddenly, they're now paying ten percent more than they thought they were going to,
2: and their their, their margin just can't absorb that. They and and as it. they're
1: a, as a person by themselves, they're not they're not a business. They don't have twenty grand of capital sitting around to just throw a, a project necessarily. Yeah. And that's how these these things can happen, I think. And even when a business starts finding its feet, a lot of the time, the people working there will still be people who are first and foremost board game hobbyists who are doing this. Mm you know, you're not necessarily gonna get people coming in because let's, I mean, let's face it, this is not an industry that you come into to make megabucks.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a growing industry, it but it's not something that you're gonna be an overnight millionaire with. Yeah,
1: exactly. And so I think people that are in it are main in it for the love of it. And that means that it's easy to have your heart
0: broken, I think. And that can have financial repercussions mm. and that can really hurt a business. That's interesting, isn't it? Because it sounds to be then, if we talk about the kind of few key issues there. So there's one, there's this kind of question that, A lot of people who get into it because it's hobbyist-led don't necessarily make, let's be completely honest here, the soundest business decisions, right? The problem is partly that they're saying, well, I'm doing this as a hobby, so I don't need to make money. And they're thinking, therefore, it's fine if margins are low. Whereas actually, that's not really that great because you're not considering all of the different things that can come along and screw you quite badly. I mean, shipping for one for me—I can attest to that right now. I think in the end we're going to spend something like eighteen thousand more dollars or something on shipping than we really needed to originally. Ouch! It's very painful, but it's at the same time—it's like, well, there isn't really another option because we have to deliver it so that we can move on and do other things. That's not a cost a lot of people are in a position to necessarily just absorb that impact. Yeah. The second issue is—is is one that I also found very interesting in what you were saying, which is that calibrating a kickstarter campaign and things about about planning around shipment around stretch goals even if you just give yourself a little bit of extra slack what we're talking about there is like a whole set of expertise that's really completely different to the expertise of designing games
2: yeah and you misjudge one of those like say you go if my game gets another 10 grand, I'll put minis in the game. And people think that's a Mm. cool stretch goal that they see (laughs) everyone do.
0: Oh, woe betide them.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And it's like putting minis in the game might cost you 15 grand. And so therefore you've actually lost money. So you might have hit all your stretch goals and done a good chunk over. Actually, you're losing money now because you didn't realize that just paying for a single tool with six minis was going to cost you £8,000, yeah. let alone getting them sculpted, let alone getting them concepted in the first place, let alone getting reworking. Them the tools reworking, that actually works. And, yeah, yeah. And just so much stuff. And you just think that you might get a quote from someone who says, yeah, I can do that. I can do that for you. And they're trying to get your business. So they lowball the quote. And then you go back to them. And then they're like, oh, no, actually, it's going Oh, be sorry, right. no, that, that
1: quote didn't include...
2: You know the one extra mini you've put in there now because of another stretch goal has pushed it onto two tools rather than one or whatever it is and that's that's all it takes so you have to highly calibrate it and really think about it and it doesn't take much to accidentally step left or right and it be wrong or you pitch your numbers wrong so it starts losing rather than especially
1: when so much of it can be guesswork like there are very few solid figures initially Mm. when, when you when you go to a manufacturer to get a quote for example you know, you, you won't know how many you need to be, be made. You don't know what the thickness of the card will be because you're planning on doing a stretch goal that will uplift the uh, quality of your cards, so whatever it might be. So you have all these kind of... It's like there's like a dark alchemy to working out, you know, a funding goal. Yeah. And then, and you, you know, what your pledge levels are. And then, and then you, you realise there are these weird little points. Like, for example, when we were looking at in the past, we had a whole thing where the manufacturer would do quantities of 500, 1,000, or 2,500. It might be 1,000, 2,500, 5,000. Yeah. And if you go... One copy above one of those levels, you have to pay for the next one up, and so you have these like these, these danger like pinch points where suddenly, if you do exactly one thousand one copies, your margins disappear.
2: Yeah, because you're having to pay for two and a half thousand copies. Yeah, but like, and and I think it's even more dangerous because like you might be able to squeeze one extra game out of them by begging, but like if you're getting to like one thousand one hundred, yeah. you're far too comfortably in that next bracket, <clears throat> and now that's it. You've made no money because you've had to pay. For more than double what you wanted
1: and none of this stuff is game design you know if you're saying i want to design game go and write my game i'm gonna to go to kickstarter you don't think about it. you think oh i'll do a kickstarter campaign wins yay i get money i make it right and no that's the start of the hard work and then you have all this extra stuff to do.
2: And uh, what we realised after all of that as a roundabout way is we didn't want to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We didn't want to do any of that. It's
0: a minefield. It yeah.
2: is. It's And it's stressful. And it is, we tried doing it once and it was a nightmare. And it was the fact was is that just the amount of work we had to put into the prep for that one game, we could have made another game in that time.
1: Yeah. You know, we want to put food on the table. We've got a five-year-old. We've got a mortgage to pay. We are very lucky to be in a position where we can make games and get paid for it so anything so for anything to displace that time when we're doing that it has to give us a similar kind of payback otherwise we can't pay the bills you know
2: if what we're doing already works why are we trying to eventually get to a point where we're doing what everyone else is doing because what we do works and we have a nice niche yeah.
1: it's
2: like a little niche
1: and I think we're, we're lucky we're at the point where we're starting to get to work with people we want to work with. You know, we're picking and choosing. Mm. We're being, we're able to turn projects down if, if they're not, I think we particularly fancy doing so. We're basically we're having a cake, and eating it and just having a great time.
2: Yeah.
0: It sounds like a really great model for you to be running. You get to do game design. You get to secure income from it, which is something which... Only, generally speaking, a handful of game designers globally have something like a secure income from game design, where their their royalties are so substantial that they're able to live off those. That's a very select club. How does it feel, though, the fact that maybe you don't always get to do that many of your projects? Because it's always someone else's ideas that you have to work on. I really just wish we could do a thing that is completely 100% ours
1: and have the ability to not dance someone else's chin. because. When you do a, a project like this, you are very much designing something to a brief. And let's face it, nine times out of 10, people want something they recognize. They don't want kind of wacky new ideas necessarily.
2: Yeah, they man. want
1: something which does a job that they recognize. They want a dungeon crawler, or whatever else it might be that, that we all always get hired to do. And they want a thing where you have a bunch of heroes, every player plays a hero, you fight against the AI deck controlled bad guys. It's like, well, we've done this a we've few times. We've done quite now. a few <laughs> you <know? laughs> And You start running out of ideas. and. Also, I think the thing is, we're never happy to just do the same thing. Yeah,
2: we don't. There's definitely design DNA, what we call it. Like, you can see, if you've got all of our games next to one another, you'd see some themes. But we make sure that they all have a different way of running, a different way of playing in, you know, a different way of winning. They've all got different strings that we're pulling on. Mm. It, It does get to a point where you're like... I don't want to do another Dungeon Crawler. Yeah. But at the same time, not that we're ragging on Dungeon Crawlers, because I actually I really do enjoy doing them.
0: You just want the variety, right? Like, to some extent, yeah. it's the, it's the opportunity to explore different things. I mean, that's kind of the soul of creativity, right? It's novelty.
2: Mm, absolutely. absolutely. But what's lovely about working to a brief is the moment you have a brief, your job becomes easier as a game designer, because... When you tell yourself, and this is actually something we talk about in our um, game design courses, when you tell yourself you can do anything, that's actually extremely intimidating. Like do anything in the whole wide world.
1: Just make, make a anything. game.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's it's so big. Where do you start? Where if you say to someone, right, okay, it has to fit in this size box, well, that's actually a, a restriction. You're like, oh, okay, so it can't be on a giant inflatable bouncy Zeppelin. castle. Yeah. You're okay. a Zeppelin. Like, yeah. But that cuts off like one of those wacky ideas. And then you're like, oh, what we want is this, or using these miniatures or set in this world. And you start to give yourself challenges. And the moment you start giving yourself challenges, you can problem solve. And problem solving is what leads to game design, in my opinion. The problem is, is that if you've got anything that is such an overwhelming amount of stuff so even when you're designing games for yourself in our game design course we tell people write yourself a brief because even if you end up changing that brief and not doing that it'll give you a starting point like your first step down the road and that is something that's lovely about our job so we do miss the freedom but also having the restriction is the thing that makes our job easier
1: occasionally we we get a constraint on on a brief where it is hell and we bash your heads against the wall
0: repeatedly trying to make it work oh i can imagine yeah
1: yeah but at least at that point you can go back to the client and say okay this this feels like it's not working how solid is it can we tweak it can we change it but even if not that gives you an interesting challenge which keeps it lively
2: well i think a great example is um when i worked on league of infamy there was quite a strict restriction on the amount of cards we had for like equipment and i found that so difficult and i wrestled with it for weeks but what's actually come out the other end is a system where you sell back most of your kit and you only keep a couple of pieces, which actually avoids something you get in a lot of dungeon crawlers where you get like equipment bloat, where you just, by the time you get to the fifth dungeon, you've got everything. And you've got so much stuff, you can't even remember what all your kit does. And it's stacked underneath one another. And it becomes this thing where people don't really care about kit because it has no value. because You've already got everything you could get. It's
1: the same thing you see in D&D, isn't it? When you yeah. get like level 10, you're like, has anyone got a, a thing that will help with this and everyone looks down this like two page inventory yeah, Probably yeah somewhere in here I've got some stuff
2: yeah exactly you know? so and actually what it did was it forced me to reassess all of those easy assumptions about dungeon crawlers and actually made me come up with a system which I'm really proud of which is a like a way where you sell back your kit and that can give you some more renown and it's a thing where infamy sorry it's a, a thing that actually makes the game better but the restriction was extremely difficult and was a real challenge for a long time.
0: This is the power of creative constraint, isn't it? It forces you to be creative. In fact, actually, if you have no constraints at all, all you have is a vacuum. It's so interesting the way you say that, because I think, when I think about all the kind of projects we're working on at Nailer Games, of which there are now probably four or five in the pipeline, with all of those, the most interesting part for me is once we've got past the very first initial concepting, it's the most enjoyable bit, because I think, as you say, game design is about problem solving that's the part where it gets exciting right you've got the problem to solve is where you're saying oh how are we going to achieve this particular objective rather than just oh what thing in general could i make which is just too it's too general it's too free and yes sometimes you have to renegotiate those those elements those constraints sometimes because they just don't work or there's just it's not workable that is just that is life but it's a great starting point. So on that point then, let's talk a bit more about those briefs. What do you include in those design briefs to make them highly functional?
2: As much as possible. Yeah. Basically, we will we will interrogate the client and get as much information <clears throat> as possible to the point where it's like, how many players does this fall? Are there any specific components? So like quite often people will approach us with miniatures and go, we've got a miniatures range and we want a game for it. So here's the miniatures we want to make. You need to accommodate that or they'll say we want a game that you know is no bigger than this that takes this amount of time because we've noticed there's a gap in our market or they'll they'll give us limitations but then we'll push into the corners of that and be like okay so if we've got a miniatures game do you want dice because that's always an assumption that all miniatures games need dice or how do you feel about having does it need to be six-sided dice or can we have like bespoke tooling on the dice
1: yeah are you creating a starter set which includes dice you know or yeah. are you just doing a book so we look at the, the the physical product they want to make so if it's a miniatures game a lot of the time it's just a rule book if it's a board game we talk about things like how big it need, how big they envision the box as being the rrp is the rough player count is and i mean and we ask them to give examples of similar games and if they haven't got an idea on that we will come up with that ourselves and we will show it to them and we will a lot of the time we write our own briefs and get them to approve it
2: yeah you know, they'll, they'll because... come up with like uh, something that uses these models and we'll yeah. we'll we'll ask them a bunch of questions where they're like uh and then we come up and uh, we'll, we'll go away and do a, lo- a load of r&d and make some decisions based on a combination of our experience what's popular in the industry you know if they say they want an rrp of 70 pounds but they want to have like 100 minis, we'll be like, well, what does that sort of game look like? Because that's going to be very different to a RRP of 200 pounds, because they'll want a more in depth game, which is much bigger and much grander. And, you know, what can we do for what they want?
1: A game that is written for two players is very different from a game that is written for two to five players. Mm. There may be a two player experience in there in both cases, but you need to think about what, what the game, what what purpose it needs to serve and I mean and there are things like when we do things that are based on a license we talk about which aspects of the license they want us to specifically key into so for example with Hellboy it was very open it was like they had access to the entire Hellboy range of comics but they had already started making the miniatures they want these particular models to be in the game and so it was like well yeah but do you want us to draw on themes and imagery from the entire run or just from that part there and that happens with a lot of things so uh, we did the uh, devil may cry board game for steamforge games which is based off the video game and that was a very interesting one because the board game experience it's a multiplayer cooperative game which the video game has never been how do you want us to adapt that which parts do you want to keep which parts do you not mind changing
2: yeah because you can't keep the complete experience because the complete experience is not multiplayer and it's
1: not the the skill in playing the devil may cry video game as i learned while doing research for this and learned how much i suck at it is carefully (laughs) timed button presses and reading a
0: situation around you and that sort of thing that's a single player experience yes is there a reason why they asked for a multiplayer co-op version of that we never asked why but i would assume it is
1: because solo games don't sell as well okay
2: P- and also you can include more minis because you can be like yeah,
1: precisely you can have this more can add up
2: to how many players so here's more player minis you know as it happened
1: we included a set of solo play rules in the end so you, you can play it solo but it's still a very different experience but yeah absolutely that, that is one of the things that we often ask like now especially i mean we, we we briefed that one about four years ago so we were just one of the first projects we've gone now we are much more detailed in exactly what we what we want and why and and
2: sometimes
1: yeah. it is just because the client wants to yeah but we will often interrogate but we'll say yeah. why do you want to use dice what why are dice the right thing and if it's just because they've only ever played games with dice we will then show them we, we've actually had things where we've shown clients other games and played them through a couple of rounds back in the days when we could have meetings in our office we used to <laughs> often get a game out and play through a couple of rounds of things Say, "Well, how about this yeah. and you can sort of see that the, their brain sticking over it. it's like oh actually yeah. we don't need to have the thing we thought we could do this instead
2: yeah and I think some of it is just assumptions like we all do it we all make assumptions like if I say to you describe a board game we all come up with a picture in our head and that's what people assume so we we will interrogate assumptions to make sure that they're there for the right reasons if someone says there has to be no more than 120 cards in the game because they've done the costing and they don't want there to be more than that because yeah. then it changes the amount that it takes to produce fair enough if they've just picked that because it sounds like the sort of number that you should have in a game then that's not a good enough well not if they say it is at the end of the day they're the client but like that's not, not necessarily that actually, yeah
1: classic one is that, yeah i say the way cards are made for games is you know a certain number of cards based on size will fit on the card sheet like that printers one sheet and the cards are cut out so actually the exact number of cards doesn't really matter it's it's bands you know if you go over 64 poker size cards that's the second sheet if you have 70 poker size cards or 90 poker size cards, it's generally going to be the same cost as the manufacturer because they're just cutting it out of one big sheet and throwing away the rest or recycling the rest.
2: Yeah. Um, so and that's
1: a client might not know that. They yeah. might assume, well, I played Mice and Mystics and that had a deck of however many cards. So I'm going to suggest that is the number of cards you have in this game.
2: Exactly. So we just interrogate every detail we can. And sometimes people are very loose and then we will go and decide limitations for the starting brief and we will decide what the product should look like before we start or sometimes clients are extremely specific about what they want and then that's a joy because it's really easy to like be like okay this is the starting point that's cool as we always say to the clients as well is that sometimes things will grow you know you'll get to a point where you're like this game is different to the one we first started making and then that's a point of checking in with the client and making sure they're happy with it but sometimes it's actually just a case of, of keeping them up to date and then being happy with the process and then us sort of mutually agreeing, oh, actually, this would be better as four players rather than up to five. Or actually, this is much better as a two-player experience. Or whatever it is, that becomes a dialogue. But the starting point is so key for the development.
0: So given that starting point, and then I'm going to ask you a slightly broader question based on that before we move on to more parts of the process, because there are things here I'm really interested to find out more about. What does product mean to you?
1: when we talk about the product in our process it is the finished item that is sold on the shelf so usually yeah, right. a, physical... a, a game yeah. in a box with all the different pieces shrink wrapped and complete and sold as it is and that is like that's the that's the end point in our process mm. i think have you got anything, anything other than that
2: no i would say it's really interesting because we always well not always but we quite confidently talk to clients about the fact that we do try and consider product limitations as in we can't have the box bigger than fitting on a Kalex shelf because then it won't sell as well. Or we, you know, so don't make a board that's like, you know, three foot by three foot and doesn't fold up very well because that just isn't going to be marketable. And we try and consider a lot of those like physical limitations as well as the conceptual ones of what is the game? But it's really interesting to be challenged because we also don't do graphic design or art or any of those elements. We don't we don't talk to the manufacturers about the 3D plastic trays that go in the box at the end. None of that is to do with us. So even though we consider those elements, it's actually not we don't take it from concept to final product. We very much take it from concept to final game. Yeah with a consideration to their needs and then pass it on to the client and they go away and make the game
1: it'll be nice if it was that clean cut though <laughs> <always. Literally laughs> course, one, and, I mean, and we always try to push to get like some elements of graphic design layout you know miniatures we try to get that, that done during the process because invariably otherwise you'll try to get something laid out and we're quite good at avoiding this now but There have certainly been times when a graphic designer's gone, oh, we just cannot fit that much much text onto a card or actually that board is not going to fit in the box or Mm -hmm. something. And that can cause issues and we have to go back and rework things accordingly.
0: But I think we're, we're getting better at that. You're not directly working with the artists and the graphic designers for the company. You're giving them and then they're managing that part of the process.
1: Yes. But by default, that's the way it works. As we work with some smaller clients they might not have access to those things so we will then either help them find freelancers and help them manage those freelancers or we will suggest people and let them deal with it but if we're working with people that have either got in-house artists so we've done a lot of work with mantic games and steam fortune they have complete in-house design teams we just give them the files and step back
2: and they will come back to us as well because yeah. whenever a graphic designer is let loose on like, uh, I don't know, a character card, they might want to change the icons because we just use default icons. Like if it's defense, we might just put a shield on there and we get it off of uh, off the internet and we're not because we're not using that as a final product. It is a placeholder. So then they might come around and go, oh, well, I've redesigned the icon and I've put it in a different place on the card. And they might come back to us and just be like, what do you think of this? And most of the time we're like, yeah, it's fine, but we might also say things like, ah, oh, be aware that these cards are held in someone's hand. So try and avoid putting things
0: hand in, the bottom, yeah, or, in the bottom, yeah, in the bottom
2: left-hand corner or the bottom light, like, or make sure that you don't put all of your, your icons on the far left side of the card, because then they'll be really hard to see if you're holding them in a deck you know, like a hand of cards. And stuff like that or we might be like oh no the text is really too small for people to be able to read that quickly in a game so you're going to have to make that bigger and so we'll, we'll give them some feedback and that we're happy to have that back and forward but we very much design the game with the expectation most of the time that people will take that away and make it into a product although
1: um, we have had situations and we're actually doing it right now where we're working with artists the client is paying for the artists
0: you're managing them. because sophie's got a whole background in like art, art management. management yeah i was gonna ask about that yeah
2: yeah yeah so i used to manage artists in a previous life so that's why I, so I, it is a thing but again that's a service that we offer like that is a thing you know when we discuss fees we can say well we have the the capacity to manage artists and freelancers and graphic designers if you that's something you want to opt in to pay us to do, but it is not a default part of, the, of what we do. It's just it's a it's an option.
0: Is it easier or, or harder for you generally to have the more limited role in the process, where you or you're a secondary distance from the art and the graphic design? Is that is that the easier version of the process, or is it the way when you actually have a bit more control is easier?
2: Uh, yes, it's far easier, <laughs> <So> <laughs> from I, my I, opinion. <laughs> I think it
0: cuts both ways. Like
1: not having to manage it is lovely. Not having to actually have the mm pressure of doing that is great but also losing the control can mean things happen that I've, I've certainly had experiences even for larger clients even when i was working uh, in uh, over at games workshop things where i've handed something over and stepped away from it and then for whatever reason i haven't seen it until it's like the proofs are ready and it's like oh oh no they've completely misunderstood what that thing's supposed to be Can mm. that can be quite or well, they've changed something deliberately and it's not a change that I would have made myself. And yeah. that, that, that can suck. I mean, what I like to try to do is when we do a handover, we try to get the graphic designers and artists to play the game so that they know what the context is for the things they're doing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And we always try and foster a positive relationship so that we are there if there's if they get something done three months after we've handed it over because they're working on the graphic design or whatever, we do encourage them to send it to us just so we yeah. can get. An eye over it because there's also, there'll be just like silly misunderstandings. Like, you'll use a purple icon because you just were like, Oh, that's a cool icon for a blood drop or something. Mm-hmm. And then they'll read that and go, Oh, there's a purple dice in the game. So okay, that well. must be a representation be of the dice. Yeah. Or well, it needs to be purple as an well, icon. That was a very
1: specific example, wasn't that Yeah. Was probably for me. And
2: yeah. it wasn't anyone's fault that that happened because it's both of us approached it in a completely logical way, just at completely different sides. Yeah. So it was just a misinterpretation of like, oh, that icon does not represent that thing. We we didn't even notice that it was a weird color. We yeah. were just like, oh, that's a cool icon to use as a placeholder. But obviously a, a graphic designer, or an artist might be very sensitive to the colors and shapes that you're using where we don't necessarily think about that in the process. So having a collaborative experience is always easiest, whether that's us managing it or someone else managing it but we can have that collaboration even if it's months down the line and we always say I know we've stopped working on this officially but if you send us proofs through we will check them through we'll have a quick look that doesn't mean we'll go through it line by line because that's a completely different job though you know editing and all of that but we will quickly cast our eye over it to make sure there's nothing that stands out or there'll be just weird decisions there, about like putting wounds, wound tokens on a character rather than taking wound tokens off, or stuff like that. And it can totally change the meaning of how yeah. you write a rule. And the graphic designer's just gone, this looks cooler, maybe, but they won't necessarily understand the nuance of a rule or the way something's written. So we always like to check those things.
0: So my, my question on that then would be that if you could control more of the process, where actually you're the one who organizes for the graphic design and art to happen, and everyone's happy to pay for the extra, extra cost of that service, would you in general prefer to work that way? We have a very busy schedule as it is. And I think as
1: long as we could manage it so that we had oversight with them and we had enough time to do that without it becoming our full-time job, because it can be a very intensive thing to do, especially if you've got multiple artists and designers. Hmm. It can be a thing where it just eats your entire week up.
0: Oh sure, oh yeah, it's a huge yeah. part of the yeah. process, <laughs> right? Like yeah. this is another one of those things that you know people don't when they think, "Oh, I've got my game on Kickstarter." I don't think about that's a much bigger part of the process than the game design development. Yeah,
1: list.
2: yeah, mm-hmm.
0: absolutely.
1: Yeah, this,
2: this
0: is the thing: designing the game. Don't get me wrong; it
1: takes time, but it's the easy part. It, it, it's the part that is most getting <laughs> a game
2: made is so difficult. Yeah, but um, um, yeah, I think
1: like having the if we had the ability to to manage. I mean, we, we've always said. But we would love Needy Cat to grow a little bit. We'd love to get, we've got a small office. We've currently got a small office, but slightly bigger than small office (laughs) with half a dozen people eventually maybe and have an in-house designer, an in-house artist, you know, those sorts of things where we've got a good working relationship with them. We know how they work. We trust them and then we can kind of manage them in that sort of way that would be lovely
2: yeah to that point to so have one or two people creatives in the, in the yeah. office doing that would be amazing and then you could get them involved in the early stages of the, the game design yeah and that's when you start getting really interesting things because we sort of bill ourselves it's sort of like a catchphrase although we don't even know the exact meaning of it as we go we are theme first designers
1: You said that um, a
2: lot. but the <laughs> because we really want like the theme of a game to be baked into the design of it. So it's not just, you make a game devoid of theme and then plop something on on top. And then that's, you just change some words to other words and you make the art of that theme. So like in Hellboy, it was really important to us that when you used Hellboy in the game, Hellboy the board game, he felt like he was punching things like Hellboy would punch them. It, that was really important and like key to the whole development of the core game system was how do you make it so that Hellboy can punch stuff super hard how do you make it so that Liz can also use flame stuff and it feel really threatening and dangerous for her to do that and
1: I think more than that it's also thinking think like you know what is the structure of a Hellboy story what sort of stories d- does it tell you know all of that and then making sure that, that is in there from the start yeah I know from playing Magnate it's the theme is absolutely baked into every element of that game. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. In fact, I was sat here when we played it. I'm in the same spot that when you brought it up playing Oh, the game amazing! It. And I just thought, you know, it's it's a game that it puts you in the shoes of a, of, a you know a property developer, mm. and that's what we always try to do. We try to put the player in the shoes it's not like, I mean don't get me wrong we have a lot of love for abstract games we play a lot of euro games yeah we play like, a lot of games where the theme sometimes feels like an afterthought and we yeah. love them but that's not what we like making
2: yeah and I think that when you can get that collaboration where like the artist gets a chance to play very early versions or the graphic designer does not only do they get inspiration to you know that kind of you need the early thoughts to just sit in the back of your head so that while you're standing in the shower or something you can be like aha There's an idea. And if you don't have that rumination time, I think you kind of rush that process a bit. So getting that early exposure is really good, but also sometimes they just come up with really insightful stuff because they're like, oh, because this is, I don't know, insert theme here, because it's a dungeon crawler, it'd be really cool if, and they'll come up with something completely different that you can bake into the game at a really early stage. And that always, always ends being a better product. It always does when everyone is bought into that from an early stage and you're all kind of having a bit of a hand in every stage, you do tend to get a better product out of the other end. But it's so difficult to do that because when we're making a game and it gets handed over, we're making another game. And so we'll have a look at the game and give feedback on it, but it's not like we're there the whole process while they're creating the art, and creating the graphic design. We might be play testing a game while another game's being written So that games is a a constant
0: pipeline. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and I can imagine it's a it's a lot of projects because if you're a publisher, obviously, if you're doing the whole lot as I'm doing at Naylor Games, um, where we're doing the design, the development, then the briefing into artists, and then all the way up to production. One of the only bits we're not doing is actually physically making the product. If you've got all of that to do you're obviously gonna have a small number of projects if given the same size team. So obviously you're gonna have a, a more of a kind of a throughput. I'm, I'm really interested in this question of kind of what the platonic ideal version of Needy Cat Games looks like in the sense <laughs> of your description of this having a small office, because it sounds a little bit to me like it's the role you start doing is like the role of product management. One of the interesting things that I found in the board game industry is this is a term people don't really use very much in board games, oh, really? but in software is massive. And it's, it's it's like, it's such a critical role in any software company to be the product manager, because in that situation, you're the person who decides what the objectives are, what the product should do, what it's going to be. And you shepherd it all the way from initial inception to, to delivery, and maybe including even, the, even some extent of the marketing, at least around the d- devising of the marketing strategy. What's so interesting about board games is how cut up the processes. So you've got like the public, the designers who are coming up with ideas and maybe there is no market for their idea, but they'll be pitching it all over the place, you know, all the time. Your approach seems to me to be unusually holistic compared to maybe a lot of the industry because you're doing some of the freelance art management at times with some clients, the smaller ones generally. You're helping the actual, the original people come up with the ideas to actually tighten their ideas a lot because you're saying you're writing the briefs to go back to them to say, do this, yeah, exact really important stuff early on, like player counts, things like that, and box size, materials limitations, maybe even eventually manufacturing costs is thing you might consider. And so you're doing quite a lot of that. And I just wonder how similar that, similar that is. And, and the reason I asked the question about product is because I'm always really interested to see what people think about that, because my definition is a little bit different. To me, the product is the totality of the box, the experience at the table, the price point, and the marketing channel. I think about it as the entire thing, where uh, the the entire experience that I would exchange money for, because I feel like so many of what makes the most games financially successful is that they, they they deliver on a particular kind of experience for people, right? Like how Gloomhaven was probably monstrously successful because it was the first game that actually made you feel like you were playing one of those long-form RPG video games. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to the original thing you were saying about the like WhatsApp platonic ideal, what's the thing we'd like
1: to get to? I think we've been doing some work with some other designers and developers. We've got a small team of just freelance game designers who we who we know and we we so try it's to work A them network
2: really. it's than a network team, rather than a team.
1: But it's people that if someone approaches us with a game idea and we don't have capacity, we can farm it out to them, and, and we we kind of we, we do it through us. So the people have come to us because they trust us to do a good job. And so we will work with that freelancer to make sure it's up to scratch and it hits all the points in the brief. And we will use our experience to make sure it's as polished as it can be. But what I'd like, I'd like to de- develop that to the point. Yeah, I think the ideal would be if we had a situation where we are, as you say, managing the product, but then we have a game designer, a game developer, an artist, yeah. you know, an illustrator, an graphic designer. Yeah. You know, then we partner with a manufacturer or something, and we, or we have someone on the team who does all that stuff. Yeah. That, that kind of is where I'd love to be because that is where we have the freedom to dig in and get involved all stages of, of, of the process to a degree, but not have the obligation of doing it all ourselves. Because mm. I think we're both people that would get bored of doing just one part of it all the time.
2: Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why we wanted to be self employed in the first place, was just doing the same job day in, day out for the rest of my life you know nine to five was just not on the cards for me. And certainly
1: this this is never, um, dull. Yeah, this
2: <laughs> yeah. is never no. dull and it's always changing yeah it's always changing we get so many different people approaching us for games and we do occasionally do other little bits as well we'll do like rules reviews and
1: we've had the podcast you know. we've done the the game design courses we've we've run the industry networking group that we do mm, which yum. is up in nottingham which is it's kind of expanded since lockdown which is uh yeah interesting we've got people further afield now but uh,
2: yeah yeah that
1: was just that, that was originally just because we were sick of going to shows and seeing colleagues in the industry people that we knew in the industry chatting them chatting to them for five minutes in a real rush and then going away and carrying on working and not seeing them again to the next show and then realizing that they lived five minutes away from us so we just started organising little get-togethers and that's now, I mean, we've got about 300 people, I think, in the I group. I think
2: it's more than that. I think it's Possibly way more, more than that
1: now. And um, we just offer, you know, support and things. And it's the thing that we did because it seemed like a good idea. And it's one more thing we've done. I think we, we, we've been very keen to just try out different things. And yes. I and mean, that has helped us. And
2: different. It's like during lockdown, yeah. I made some demo boards uh, for War Games uh, terrain because... I have that skill set. And someone asked us, do you know anyone who makes games, Terrain demo boards? And we were like, no, I can make them.
1: It was actually, it was a, it was an alarmingly long time between those two things. We went, yeah. oh, we'll go and have a look. We went and looked around. No, no one does. And then he said, Sophie, don't, don't you do that? And you you sort of went, I, I do, I, 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 do. I, I do, yeah, uh, okay. <laughs> and you sort of realized. Yeah, I was did, like, oh yeah, yeah,
2: that's a terrible thing. So during lockdown, it was just another string to a bone, another income stream. And so that was the thing that we do. And occasionally I do them now as an extra little bonus. Yeah. So we're very open to just giving lots of different things a try, which I think is really key when you're in a small business is not to shut down opportunities too early, not to go, my company just does this one thing because that's the one thing I'm interested in. It's worth exploring around that because actually sometimes you find weird little foibles that you're actually quite good at little weird things that you can be like, Oh, oh, this is a thing that people want to pay me to do. Amazing.
1: And I think even in like five, 10 years time, wherever Needy Cat is, I would still
0: like to have the freedom to do that. And that's what I crave. I think I need that variety yeah. to function. You're almost like that kind of the, the Google concept, isn't it, where they have the sort of 10% time or 20% time to work on non, non-job non related yeah. projects. Yeah. Probably because they know they're actually a lot of quite creative people who actually would get very bored if they weren't able to do things that are a bit different, right? Because this isn't just a nine to five in the sense of like, I am I have interests outside of work and this is just about paying for me to live. There are almost infinite better options than, than games for that, if we're completely honest, right? Like there's like <laughs> Absolutely. tabletop games, Absolutely. Let's, yeah. Relatively small industry, high levels of uncertainty, competing with other people who are happy to do it for love and not get paid. Not an ideal situation if you just want to make piles of money yeah we've certainly seen a few people come into the industry
1: saying i'm gonna you know leverage this this industry this growing industry and make loads of money off it and it's always like you're not gonna be here in two years are you and sure enough they always tend to um
2: but they they stay smart enough or they disappear it it demands a lot of passion to push through because as well it is still quite a young industry i know it's been around for a long time but in terms of the way it's growing the speed it's growing at in most of the industry, it's very new. Like there's a lot. Like Kickstarter's still only been around for what a decade. Yeah, it's not a long time. Crowdfunding
1: has remade this industry, and the industry that it is now is not what it was ten years ago. Mm. In this current form, it is still very much in like an adolescent phase, I think,
0: mm. and there nothing is certain. Well, if we talk about board games, because I think the interesting thing is that there's this interesting division that I think is not always clear between tabletop war games, as pioneered really primarily by Games Workshop and the broader board game universe is that the broader board game universe is really young right because actually before the 1990s even the idea of there being a kind of connoisseurship amongst hobby games didn't really exist absolutely
1: yeah
0: like there's miniatures collecting before that but you know for example i think even games workshop's most famous product which is probably warhammer forty thousand, right and that is 90 Two ninety-one, 91 yeah. i think yeah i think right about there
1: somewhere yeah absolutely it's the sort of thing where before that point board games were a thing you had in a cupboard at home and when you went, went around to your nan's house on a, on a rainy sunday you'd play a board game or they'd come out on christmas or new year in the uk we've always had a, a strong culture of that sort of board game and like parlor games and that sort of mm. thing but as you say it wasn't really until 10 20 years ago that people started Dude. being interested in hobbyist board games so, you know
2: I remember many years ago, we used to visit eclectic games in Reading a lot. What I was so shocked with was they they had all these board games in, which I was really excited about. But then they started doing like luxury board games, like luxury Scrabble yeah. and luxury Triple Pursuit. And the thought of anyone being interested in having a deluxe, fancy Monopoly set with like proper, nice, chunky wooden pieces on a nice wooden board that's been engraved, I just can't imagine anyone when I was in the 80s playing my broken Monopoly set that was missing half its bits that anyone would have cared about that. Now there probably obviously were people who we cared about that but the fact that that's come up so recently is is like
1: it's, I think it's there, there have always been like high quality like Monopoly sets but it's the the general quality shift has moved towards that generally. Okay? Mm. People want nice games where it's not just a, a thin flimsy piece of cereal board it's like it's nice yes. chunky cardboard and components Mm. that are nice to move around, you know.
2: Well, again, it's the experience, the experience playing the game, not just about the game outcome or the game story, but the, the physical experience you have while playing the game. Like Splendor, we've got a game, uh, Splendor and it's fantastic, but it's got like poker chips in it and just physically holding the poker chips. They're so chunky and heavy. They've got such a nice sound to them. And it's like, that's part of the pleasure of playing the game.
0: Mm. Yeah, completely. Well, where does all that mean that we're going then? Can this quality element just drift ever upwards? What what does that mean for the future?
1: I think we're starting to see the rumblings of a split because there's a lot of talk happening, a lot of discourse happening around the subject of games starting to price people out, yeah. where the push for quality and luxury experience is making board games quite inaccessible to people without a, you know, a large amount of disposable income. So I think as the push for quality goes on, and I think and that is driven by, for example, as we are saying earlier, Kickstarter, you know, you want to have things for your stretch goals and make your game as nice as it could possibly be, but then that affects the, the retail price. I think as that goes on, we're going to see more of a market for budget board games. There, there was a company, I don't know if it's still going, but I remember there was a company called Cheap Ass Games, and they were basically, uh, they were sold, they were sold in like paper envelopes, and they were designed to be played with existing game components you had. So it assumed you would have access to dice, counters, playing pieces of some kind. Yeah. And you would buy it dirt cheap. And yeah, they would, and they this, were really this is like the early days of the internet, really. So that they, were, uh, they were mainly sold at conventions and things. And I imagine if the equivalent was now, it would be that that's what it's the print and play market now, basically. There was that whole. It was a rebellion against board games becoming more sort of luxury, and people always paying for the same. You know, how many different types of meeple do you really need? The answer is lots. But you know, there, there was that kind of pushback against that, and I think we will see more of that. And I think what's interesting is you're seeing the rise of print and play games, where you go to go on the internet and and find dozens of roll and write games you can download, yeah, yeah, and like play for free. The, the
2: success um, of things like Drive Through RPG and stuff like that as well. I think, really yeah. Is. Really, is testament to the fact that people don't care about buying a fancy rule book necessarily you
1: know yeah But well, I, I think there's going to be that split i think you're going to have the luxury market and then you're going to have the budget market and you're going to have the things that fall in between the two i mean certainly we're seeing the budget end. i mean when you look at things like the custom made board game tables board game furniture and things there are people who have enough disposable income they want to have a really classy hobby they want to be able to have a lovely gaming room that you go into and it's an experience then there are other people who will people at university or college or at school who maybe just want to just play games because games are cool and, and there is everything on that spectrum in between the two
2: i think what we'll get is more games that fulfill more niches because i think it's weird lots of people are like oh it's a crowded market it's not at all it's not at all it's growing so quickly I've heard people being like, "Oh well, there's already so many Kickstarters out this month. Like how?" And I do agree that Kickstarter, I think, is getting crowded. The really.
1: bar's raising; you have to stand but,
2: out. Well, that's the thing. But I don't think we'll see a drop in games being made. I think you'll yeah. we'll just see games fulfilling different niches like you'll get more games that are similar to your 150 pound price point games but being sold at 25 where it's all bits of paper and it's very low cost it's similar very gameplay accessible. experience but yeah so, yeah and exactly and you'll see people who are like well i want and like the call for miniatures in games well that pushes the price up but then you're going to get people who want those same experiences but maybe you're okay with chips I think you know? um, great
1: result, because Gloomhaven is basically it is very rare to see a game like Gloomhaven with mostly card standees. Mm. You know, that is a thing where, and I I know loads of people who say, I love the idea of it, but I won't play it because I I, I like miniatures. Yeah. That's great, but that would be, I don't want to think how much that box would cost if every monster in it was a, was a miniature. It would be
0: hundreds and hundreds. Yeah. Right, it would be like buying the complete pledge for <laughs> Kingdom Death Monster, right? It would be like that but like all all of it for one pledge for for Gloomhaven because there are something like 30 or so monsters, there are something like 10 of each of the chips of the monsters. So that's already 300 additional miniatures. Precisely. And what I will say, yeah, I mean,
1: you know, this is a tangent completely, but I think that putting miniatures in as a default isn't always a good thing. Because, yeah, of course, there are people that like miniatures, but you can do a lot more with standees. You know, if you've got, like, a like yeah. a, uh, like a a legacy game, I think it's the thing that, um, once again, Charterstone
2: did very oh. really
1: well. Which is a, it's a legacy sort of Euro uh, civilization builder game. That has a whole box of cards that you draw from. So certainly unlock new cards and bring them in. And some of those are little card-sized punch board things, which bring new components into the game. And you can have standees on those. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff you can do that miniatures can't get away with. And
0: yeah. uh, it would be interesting to see, see people veer away from miniatures to mm. a degree. I'm really interested to come back to this question about your view on the market and whether or not it's too saturated, because this is what I hear is the default thing people say. I think it's much more common to believe that the market is sort of saturated, that it's already, full. there are already too many games, for example, than to say the reverse. So I think it's a really interesting, quite controversial statement in many ways that you said, and I'm really interested in exploring that because... I have a sense of the same thing. But I guess there are two ways in which markets can grow, right? So we actually know from the objective data that's still growing. So it can't be saturated in the sense that something like the average European growth rate is something like 5%. And in China recently, I saw that the growth rate was 19% or
2: 20% in
0: market size every year. So as probably Asia becomes the more and more center of all of this, that's going to become the really huge market. And And there's still an absolute monster amount of growth left there. The question I guess that one might have though is the number of different games is a slightly different metric. So we've talked about Kickstarter might be saturated. What do we think about the number of different games being released?
2: I really do think that the industry is massively growing and because there are so few people who still play board games as a like habitual thing, right? how many people do you know yeah you probably as your friendship group if you know some people who are because you're into board games you have surrounding stuff with people who are into board games but actually beyond that circle how many of your friends and family every weekend go let's play a board game and actually that number of people the people who play games sort of casually but still regularly I think that's the group that are growing massively more and more people are like oh well we've got nothing better to do i'll take my parents to the local board game cafe and we'll spend an hour or two playing ticket to ride and that is a huge market that is i think almost untapped and actually a lot of the hobby the the hobby board game world as it is is very niche and pushes down on niches. Let's put more miniatures in. Let's make it a more difficult dungeon. Let's go and make it more challenging with our escape room games. Let's go and dig down into this really, really deep lore about Lord of the Rings or whatever it is. Where actually, I think the untapped market is that the casual gamer who plays with their family, who gets more and more people involved that way. What games are they playing? Where are those games going to lead? And it's really interesting to see, like if you ever go to a, game, a board game cafe on a Saturday afternoon, like we've got a couple local. Obviously, current situation excuse, but before everything sort of went bad, as it were, you used to see whole families, people who clearly are not board gamers, playing like Ticket to Ride and Clank, and you know, like I'm trying to think of some of the standard ones that they were always playing.
1: You don't always have like there'd be Catan, there'd usually be a Monopoly out somewhere. Yeah, but you'd have like a, a variety of different. The thing is, like you say, it's like if you would take a snapshot of of the current audience for board games, if if that were not to grow, then, yeah, maybe we're reaching a saturation point. But the fact is, it is growing massively, you know, pushing into other markets. And last year, running up to the Kickstarter we ran, we had a marketing intern from the local university, Faria. She was wonderful. She was, I think, a master's student in marketing and the university paid for her to come and do, do marketing for us. And... She was from Pakistan, I forget exactly where, but she was saying like she had just started hearing about board games, like becoming a scene out there. And she was taking back all this, all this information and like she was saying, there is definitely an emerging scene. And so yeah. I think it's pushing into new markets. But I think also tied to that is you're seeing more voices creating. Yes. Games. So I don't know how familiar you are with uh, nib card Games in Africa. Oh yes, I've heard of this, yep. Hey, see, I, I want to say, is it Nigeria? Somewhere, my, my, my geography is terrible, but they set up a small board game convention. And I remember this about five years ago or so, and they started having, it was basically their village, did sort a of board game convention. And they had a load of imported board games, and they'd get people to come and play. And now they are producing their own board games. They have a board games cafe, which is really popular. And they get, what's really interesting is you look at the games. And the themes and the gameplay are very different to what you see mm. in games that are produced in this country or in Europe or America. There's um, one of the guys that came on our design course, designs games he's over in India, and he has a whole bunch of games. He did a showcase on his YouTube channel. Uh, I'll dig out the link, you can put it in the show notes. It was a, a showcase of Indian design board games. And again, the themes are so dramatically different. And whereas there's always been, so India and Africa have always featured heavily in Western board games, now you're getting voice—you uh, know—board yeah, games then, created by people that yeah. actually have an authentic voice to make those games.
2: Absolutely, and they're from—they're from a very specific perspective. Yeah, often of a not a oh, great well, perspective. There's well. the whole
1: thing about colonialism in board games. isn't it's, there? It's that's a the whole discussion itself. But
2: and also even you know like and you look at these these new emerging worlds and it, it sounds really corporate to be like emerging emerging markets, but there are new whole new worlds of what board game design even means and how it works like that convention you mentioned there is like a whole culture now like there's a there's a whole like indie game design scene isn't there where people like make their own games of whatever they've got around their house and there's like a whole culture of it now where there's a new and more and more people just making games for as a hobby and you just think this is the direction that games can move You, you should
1: try and get Casey on here, who, who runs Nib Nip games, because I'm sure he would have some
0: fascinating insights. It sounds like an absolutely fascinating conversation. Well, I have to say, this entire conversation has also been incredibly fascinating, and I'm finding it very inspirational, actually, because I think it's it's really interesting to, to meditate on those larger questions of market. I'm really aware, though, that we are rapidly running out of time. So what I would like to do is actually go to some listener questions next. Obviously, the thing you've mentioned before is you run these tabletop design workshops. So he had a question uh, about how your switching to online workshops has changed your approach. He asked what things are easier online and which ones are kind of easier face-to-face. We
1: used to do workshops in person. We we used to run a series of three like full-day seminars, which were in person. There were, I think they had 12 people as a maximum in each one.
2: Yeah oh it might have been 15. 12, it 15 was, it it was, was.
1: It's not much. And we had a buffet it was a nice kind of full day event and we always run it so the morning was theory and the afternoon was practical work so they would do stuff based on the stuff we'd done in there in, in, in a theory session. Moving online obviously changed that quite a bit. For a start we were able to have more people coming down. We still tend to keep, keep the the events to about 30 I think or so mm. but because you don't have to physically cram people into a room, that's that's a bit easier.
2: And we immediately, we started breaking it up more. Because the thing is, is we were very aware when we did it in person that people would be travelling to attend them. Yeah. So the last thing you want is to do, well, we, we decided we didn't want to do like, let's do six hour long ses- sessions. Because then that means people have to travel or they're just not going to do yeah. it. So we made it these big, long day events, but it actually meant that we could make the sessions themselves a little bit more manageable by just breaking them up into smaller chunks.
1: And also more coherent. So, I mean, initially the, the three things we did, we did one which is about kind of the very first steps, getting an idea out of your head and onto paper and onto the table and playing a game. Then we talked in the middle one about refining your idea and the third one was about kind of uh, manufacturing and production, that sort of thing. And part two in the middle had kind of, a lot more to it, it really yeah you know, the whole point of the whole process of developing and refining a game is a massive subject but we felt the need to make the days quite thematic so when we moved to on, online we, we went with a six parts a six hour long seminars we ran it weekly and part one is still about getting the ideas out of your head on the table part mm-hmm. six is still about what happens at the end but parts two to five had room to breathe so we could spread out that middle part of the process it's the same information d- delivered in a, in a different
2: But I think it's it's probably a bit more accessible, especially for people who can't sit and concentrate for hours at a time. Because even us, at the end of the day, we were just shattered. So it was quite an intensive experience. I think the the thing that makes it difficult though, is not being with people in the room when, because we used to put people, like we warned them that we were going to do it. We did tell people you're going to be put on the spot, but we used to put people on the spot after we'd done the first theory session and be like, right, okay, now make a game and people would be like what make a game and we're like don't do your the thing you've had your heart set on for the last 10 years don't do the main idea make something completely new up here's a pile of components you know here's a bunch of scrap paper because we we, a big theme of our, our like the initial getting out your head is just scrappy don't commit to it don't put too much effort into it but the moment it's out of your head and it exists then you can change it and make it better if it's never comes out of your head if you never write it down and you can you try to theorize the whole thing before you make it which is what a lot of people do is they're like first stumbling block Then it doesn't exist so it's not a game and you can't make it better so we did this whole thing i but being physically in the room with people you could be like just, just write it, it down can't. just write it down
1: whereas like the, the equivalent of the practical sessions in the online courses we have almost like homework assignments like you can go away and do this thing before you look at the next one but of course we're not in the room able to say make sure you do it because so many people came out of that first session saying oh my god I hadn't realized that if I just give myself permission to make something that might be a bit naff but it's complete or you know, it's playable it's such a liberating feeling yeah. so many people got so much out of that process and the
2: games they made were fantastic work, yeah. every single game had clever ideas every single game had great potential you know yes they weren't finished yes they were clunky because they were first ideas but yeah. oh my goodness the stuff that we saw we were like this is so inspirational
1: and so that it's a shame we can't have that in the online course yeah yeah that must be challenging because yeah.
2: what you do get is you get people going right so here's my This is the thing I've been working on for 10 years. And I'm thinking this or this. And you have the forums. Everyone's like, well, just make it. And they're like, oh, well, not until I've worked out how this stage works. You're like, ah, just make it. You were in a room. I would tell you to put that to a side. And I would put a piece of paper in front of you and make you draw a box. Right, that's your playing (laughs) space. Right, now let's get something in there. But you can't do that online. So that is the one thing that I think you lose. But apart from that, I actually think it is a bit more digestible. And I think...
1: The, the trade-in is that we, we're we much bigger on the ongoing support. So we invite all the attendees to our Discord server, and we've got a, a room locked just for them. Mm-hmm. And they, if they need any ongoing support questions, whatever, we're there for them. And there's a whole, like, lovely community springing up of, of game really designers who are really supportive of each other as a result of it. So, yeah, it's not quite the same, but I think it still works really well.
0: What do you do to cut loose when you've had a stressful game design-related issue? Huh? We usually go to the pub afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually about a month ago, or whenever it was, he probably dated it
1: quite specifically. We'd had a really, really tough day. A couple of tough meetings.
2: Very mentally challenging. When we say tough, we mean like, you know, those days where you feel like your brain's falling out your ears and you're just like, I've yeah. just used all my brain power.
1: And Sophie just said, I wish we'd go to the pub. And they just opened. I was like, we can go to the pub. And so we did. So we went and we sat outside and very cautiously looking around at everyone suspiciously and, you know, <laughs> flinching away from human contact. But we did and it was quite nice. We had a couple Sadly. of drinks. One thing that's interesting is because we live together as well, it can be hard to switch off, Mm. especially if we've had a rough day, like to not take that home is difficult.
0: That must be very, very challenging. Also, because I can imagine if it's a particular issue both of you really care about, you're going to instantly be like, oh, I just had this idea about this. And you're thinking this might be time when you almost really want to segment it a bit and not talk about work. I mean, do you have some kind of no shop talk rule? How does that work?
2: We try, we should have, shouldn't but we? we? We try, <laughs> we actually, we're actually we a lot stricter on it these days than we used to yeah. be. A lot stricter because we used to just do work all the time and do late nights as often as we could, or go in early. or One of us would go in early while the other one took Lily to school and then we'd catch up. And it was, but we've actually very much got a quite strict, like nine to five and friday working schedule we don't we try really hard not to book in meetings around that obviously there are issues with american people in america and stuff but that's relatively it we do have things where we're now a bit more conscious so i might go i've got a great idea i need to tell you so it's out of my brain and then i'll say the idea and then we'll have a quick chat about it i'll be like right i'm gonna write that down and then we're gonna we're gonna put that on the shelf again
1: we've often had things like if so robot fight club which went on kickstarter last year that started when we decided we're both exhausted let's go out and get some sushi so we We went went out and got a bite to eat and just because we didn't have to think of anything else we're like oh you know what we could make and it suddenly immediately was back on to a work conversation and and that happened so much
0: oh god yeah yeah
1: so
2: we we are a lot better um and we are a lot better than we were when we go to the pub it's it's less about needing a drink and more about changing the setting so it's about getting out of the office and getting out of the house because and seeing other
1: people occasionally and seeing
2: other people like <laughs> it is difficult though because the last if i've had a really tricky challenging day i desperately want to see my friends but the last thing i want to do is play a board game <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's definitely it's impacted
1: mm-hmm. our board game playing a lot yeah. because oh i bet you know as soon as you start designing games i'm sure you know you, you've noticed this you, you now can't switch it off you can't not see the production qualities of a game or like oh, how they make that component or whatever it might be work
2: out like i remember there was one Christmas where we were like oh we're just gonna play it's like a family thing and someone had a thing called triopoly instead of monopoly and it was like a three-tiered knockoff version it was clearly a cheap cash-in and someone had it and we were like fine we'll just play it because it's it's not to do with work and I and I was getting really annoyed because it was just really boring and I was just sitting there going well, the the sides of the board are only eight long instead of ten that you normally get Monopoly. So when you're rolling two dice, the average roll is seven. So you're just landing in the same places in the board every and single have time. And we had a good
1: like we and, picked it apart, didn't we? Yeah, we? didn't really mean to. We, we were like, oh,
2: we couldn't. I couldn't not. We should
1: be playing. I, <laughs> <couldn't
2: laughs> I, I bet this
0: made you very popular. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely.
2: <laughs> but it's just stuff like that where I was like, well, if they did a single dice roll or different decided dice <laughs> this would be a problem yeah. but like you immediately start thinking about those things so it is tricky but it for us it's changing of situation we're very 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 lucky as well that we have a park literally five minutes walk from our office so when we're getting really stressed like with the thought the 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 way that we're thinking is getting a bit overwhelming or we've got too much work and Gabe is stressed out we go for a walk and going just again changing the scenario changing the place we are being able to just walk around a park is so good to reset and to de-stress and having a dog now we have an office dog called Rosie and she forces us to get out of the office on a regular basis and we'll take Rosie for a big long walk and when we come back we'll reset so that really helps
0: fantastic so you've got rosie to make sure that you take walks regularly i mean i think that's that's probably great advice for anyone to be honest in terms of i think de-stressing i think going for a walk in, in a green space is pretty much fantastic i think every time or
2: well, get a dog you know that's the other way to be stressed <laughs> the other one
0: we're forced to take the walk as well isn't it that's the advantage yeah, yeah, that's absolutely. the advantage of that <laughs> so i guess we kind of then wrap up then so what should we be looking for from you is there anything that we should be on the lookout for from Lady cat games coming soon uh, so we're currently working on a game called Myth and
1: Goal for Blacklist Games. That is a, it's like a fantasy sports game, uh, sports based kind of thing. It's, it's an interesting one because the, it, it, it's springing from a, a set of miniatures they're making, which can be used in games of Blood Bowl, Blood Bowl being a popular games workshop game, third party miniatures being a big thing for that. So our challenge was to make a game that used miniatures that were compatible with Blood Bowl. But for my own personal benefit, having worked on Blood Bowl was nothing like it. <laughs> and so that was a whole, it's very different it's more about team management than... yeah
2: it's really i'm really excited about it because it sort of forces you to think about the flow of the game and looking after your players and like yeah. switching people's players out when they get exhausted and things rather than it just being about individual players taking hits or yeah. whatever it's a really interesting take on the, on the genre so, so we've got that we've got there's some stuff we can't talk about, which yeah, I'm super excited. Always the way. I'm, to I'm talk so out. frustrated. Every game I work on is one I'm not allowed to talk about <laughs> until it's released.
0: Those NDAs, eh? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but also, I mean, actually,
1: one thing that is quite cool, Sophie has been making, she said, gaming tables for a while, and she started putting them up on TikTok okay. because she's young and relevant. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, and there's quite an,
1: actually quite a nice little hobby community on there. People with you know, big into board games and tabletop games and things. And you're about to start making a new board which you're going to be live streaming. Yes, I'm going to
2: be making a blood bowl board and I'm going to be live streaming it on TikTok. Um, Sophie makes terrain, so you can come oh, and fantastic. check me out if you like.
1: Yeah, so there we go. Uh, and that, that's that's kind of that's as much as we can really talk about right now. Obviously, our game design courses are available at needycatgamescom tickets, and um, we've got Kind of two things, we've got the, the games online, Live, which is the six hour online conversion of the one that we did originally, and that's mainly fantastic because I have a massive lockdown beard, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so that, 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 that's good. Uh, and then also I did one a few months ago which goes more into signing like up miniatures, war games, and things, which is a thing that's quite close to my heart. So, yeah, those are all up there. Uh, people can
0: check this out if they'd We've like got to we some
2: more things coming hopefully in that regard as well so yeah.
0: well, watch this space <laughs> yeah. watch this space indeed oh well thank you so much again for joining me it's been really fascinating and i hope we get another chance on another you. conversation about the industry sometime soon oh, thank, thank you. you producing fun is produced by nailer games if you enjoyed the show follow us on spotify stitcher or other major podcasting platforms Remember, producing fun is also a product, and it thrives on feedback, so please leave a review wherever possible, or simply send me your feedback directly. You can message me on Twitter, at naylorjames, or write me an email, james at Until next time.